a Podcast One production. This could be one of the most controversial episodes yet. We're talking about conservative politics. Seems to be growing or noise around it getting louder and either has people wholeheartedly for it or rabidly against it. With this series, I'm reluctant to get on current politicians, sitting members either in the Senate or the House of Representatives because I feel that they might be a little compromised. However, I get the feeling that my next guest won't be compromised at all because, uh, truth be told, he does speak his mind from time to time. Senator Cory Bernardi, thank you for your time and joining us on Peacock Politics. It's a pleasure and thanks for uh, making me a part of this great new series. Now, what is conservative politics based on? Well, it depends on who you ask because there isn't a specific set of criteria as to what comprises a conservative or not. And if you get a a group of self-identified conservatives in a room, they'll disagree on a whole range of things. Um, There are many political parties that are deemed to be conservative and yet I would say they're the anathema of what a conservative should be. But in the end, uh, the version of conservatism that I embrace is one that that recognises human nature, that says... We need a civil society in order for freedom to flourish, that free enterprise is good, that families are important, and that personal responsibility should be paramount for uh, every citizen in this country. I'm not into protectionism, I'm not into big government, and there are other conservative or self-identifying conservatives who say that uh, that's what they should be doing. So it's not based on a a view held by a certain politician a while ago, it's based on or general society, how it operated a time ago yeah. and using the parts of that, no matter what yeah. side of politics then? The, well, that's right. I mean, if you go back through history, the institutions that have given us, uh, you know, opportunities and success and the maximum amount of freedom that we've had have evolved over successive generations. And so you learn from the mistakes of the people that came before and you try not to make those mistakes again. And as a consequence of that, our institutions are stronger, or they should be. Um, Our experience means that we know how humans thrive and under what sort of conditions they achieve the best possible outcomes that they can. And that's what conservatism is. It's saying, well, look, let's not jettison everything that's uh, proved itself in the past. Let's try and improve it by making prudent and incremental change rather than radical change. Even you were elected as a member of the Liberal Party, so you look at previous happenings in Australian politics that the Labor Party have introduced and and think they're good ideas and ones to move forward with? Yeah, absolutely. There's been um, a number of changes through, you know, successive governments. But if you go back to the Hawke-Keating governments, you know, they did some very good economic things. Um, they floated the Australian dollar, for example, which I think is a, a very positive step forward. Uh, the coalition have done some pretty dumb things uh, economically in the past. They've put taxes up and so forth. People can argue about a whole range of different uh, policy agendas. But in the main, there's been a framework in which both the major parties have governed. And I think they're jettisoning that framework. I think they're morphing into um, reactionary political groups that simply respond to the demands of a, of a very shrill minority who want to take us in a radically different direction as a country. Why is conservative politics so topical today? Well, I guess it's mostly because the historical conservative party, which is a liberal party, um, has abandoned its roots. It was elected to uh, under Tony Abbott to do certain things. It failed to prosecute the case adequately. It seemed to dump a lot of its core beliefs um, and it became a sop to, to the same sorts of players that um, are seeking to drive the left agenda. And 
as it's abandoned its roots, the voters have looked elsewhere and they voted about 30%, I think, in the upper house for minor parties, including those on the left of the spectrum and those on the right of the spectrum. And I came to the conclusion that I don't think there was a principled conservative party for people to vest their vote in. When I say principled party, one that is is bound by a set of values or guided by a set of values in assessing every policy agenda. Um, The other alternatives seem to be more reactionary. They seem to be driven around personalities and uh, uh, the desire for attention rather than actually getting good outcomes for the people of Australia. What exactly is the left agenda and you obviously have a problem with it. And why do those with a left agenda have a problem with a right agenda, which is around where you sit? Yeah. If you look at the two battle lines, it's about the role of government effectively, the role of the family. I mean, it's another institution uh, and the role of civil society. And if you look through the left agenda, whether it be, you know, communism or socialism or any variation thereof, it placed the government at the centre of uh, almost all decision-making. It uh, engorged it. It became every problem could be fixed by government uh, and if only the people would generate enough money for the government to do the things that it would do, uh, everything would be sweet. Now, we know that doesn't work uh, and what we have in Australia is a growing government which sees the Australian people as, uh, you know, economic units rather than independent lovers of freedom. And so the right side of politics has historically been about smaller government. It's been about personal responsibility for individuals, maximising the freedom within the constraints of a civil society. And that means that, you know, you, you have at the core of it this ethic of reciprocity. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Try not to hurt other people. Let's celebrate the fact that I can make a profit by providing goods and services that others want to consume. And in doing that, I will uh, create jobs for a whole range of people and, and more prosperity for everyone in Australia. Civic society, that, that notion is a big term. There's a lot that goes into it. Obviously, Huge. there's going to be a lot of differing views in a society, how a society is civic with each other well, and how it gets on with life. So within that, there's got to be different ways and means of coming to conclusions. Then uh, this is the, the beauty of what I would term the maximum amount of freedom within a civil society. So that, you know, there are people who, the extreme libertarians, for example, who say government should have no role in a whole range of factors. And that unleashes, you know, some sort of anarchic forces, right? And I, I'm not one of those people. I think we have to temper Uh, human behaviour because historically, whenever you give people too much freedom or too much power, they tend to abuse it and misuse it. So we want to have a civil society and that means where people look after each other. Uh, We have voluntary institutions that uh, will build communities, that families are at the epicentre of it. They're the best incubus for raising you know, the citizens of the future and our children. Government should be limited in its coercive impact, but it needs to be there to provide support for those who who truly need it. And it needs to provide the roles or fulfil the roles that governments traditionally do, such as maintaining law and order, defence of our nation, those sorts of things. You're obviously crystal clear on your views. You've written books about it. You do a podcast about it. And Please, people, continue to download this one first and then maybe have a look around on uh, podcast platforms for whatever else you want to listen to. However, do you think that the Liberal Party is becoming splintered with people within that party running off and going to the electorate with their ideas 
within the frame of the overarching thought of what the Liberal Party should have been once upon a time, whether that's still relevant now, what I'm saying is, can you see a Liberal Party in existence in 20 years' time as different views on conservatism and right-wing politics take hold? Well, historically, the Liberal Party's always had this foundational belief structure that government should be smaller, that we believe in free enterprise, we want to see personal responsibility. Uh, We thought that civil society was important in protecting and and defending, and um, that gave people the maximum amount of freedom. Now, what we've seen since then, there was also uh, what others would term the smaller liberals that came in that had a a more socially progressive, generally socially progressive uh, conscience and voice. But most of the things that those two wings of the Liberal Party brought to it they agreed on. And that was built around economics, It built around free enterprise and, and personal freedom. That seems to have gone by the wayside. And if I can give you just one example of it, when Tony Abbott was elected in 2013, he then implemented what was called a deficit reduction tax. And it was temporary. It was designed to be temporary. And it put the top marginal tax rate up from 47 cents in the dollar to 49 cents in the dollar. And I was the only person who stood up in that party room and said, look, we are meant to be the party of lower taxes. Why are you putting this tax up? And the response was, well, we know this will make no difference, but it looks like a good thing to do. And I just thought that was a terrible way to approach policy. Previously, the entire party room would have thought that lowering taxes was a good idea and shrinking the size of government. And uh, I realised then that things had radically changed. And since that time, we've had continuing demands for more government programs, more money to be thrown at things, bigger spending, uh, all of these things that are uh, not achieving any of the results that they're designed to achieve. And people are claiming, just like the left of the political spectrum do, that spending more money or borrowing more money and government doing more is going to actually fix the problems. And I have a completely counter view to that. A lot of what you say about the economy gets lost in what you say about um, civic society. And now I know that's a, a generalism that I've just come up with, but you get a lot of headlines for your views on matters such as immigration and climate change. Is that fair or is that your tactic? Oh, it is what it is. Um, You know, no one says that politics or the media are meant to be fair. But to be frank, there have been so many mischaracterizations of what I've actually said. And my words, I'm happy to stand by them at every single juncture. And in the fullness of time, in many of these cases, it's been proved correct. Um, The first controversy, I sort of was, I think I was just elected in 2007. All right, we should have cool heads on global warming because what the alarmists were telling us, such as Tim Flannery, that the rains would never fall and it wouldn't snow again, and Al Gore was saying you'd be unable to stand outside by 2012 because it'd be too hot. All of those alarmist tactics and scaremongering, uh, I said, were simply unlikely to become true, and you've got to go about this in a prudent, manageable manner. Now, you know, that started a controversy. I've had things to say about defending traditional marriage. I've talked about immigration, but If we can't talk about immigration in this country and about the disparate forces at work and what it's actually, how it's changing the country, what's the point of being in public life? And yet to talk about immigration, you're told you're racist or you're a bigot or you're this or you're that. But the the, the reality is what I was saying back then has actually come true. Like in what regard? 
Well, if you look at uh, uh, global climate change, for example, the globe hasn't essentially warmed in the last uh, decade or so. Uh, none of the alarmist uh, claptrap put forward by Tim Flannery and Al Gore and, and things have come true. If you look at immigration, uh, you know that it's having a negative effect on the quality of life and the personal incomes for uh, everyday Australians. We know that there are uh, legal and cultural divides. We know that our budget is uh, going backwards at a rate of about $30 billion a year. Uh, our welfare bills are too high. Our taxes are too high. I could go on and on and on. All of these things have been controversial because they've been too early, but now they're talked about in mainstream society. Um, if you think about, we, I, I've spoken previously about uh, Islam and the direct threat that it, it poses to uh, our Western um, cultural values. Now, that's pretty much accepted in this day and age, but it was hugely controversial uh, seven or eight years ago. Just on climate change, so the Lowe Institute did a survey. 84% of people that were asked in the survey thought that renewables are important. 59% said climate change is a huge issue. The CSIRO government agency did a report with the Bureau of Meteorology and the planet has warmed by one degree in the past 100 years and also the hottest years on record. We've had a majority of them in recent times. My question is how much of those facts or how much of those studies from government agencies and those who just sit outside the government agencies do you need to take on board to maybe change your view away from what you have as a conservative politician to maybe change it a little or if not change it at all well, when, when the facts change, I'll, I'll change my mind. Let's go through those. Uh, what people believe is entirely up to them, right? So you can't make a, a rational policy response uh, by what people believe. You mentioned that the temperature has gone up by one degree in the last 100 years. Uh, that's absolutely probably quite right, but it hasn't changed uh, measurably statistically in the last decade when carbon dioxide has been rising. And so what we're not, we're not disputing the fact that, or I'm not disputing the fact that the climate is changing because it's always been changing. But I simply do not buy and I cannot accept because there is no statistical valid evidence that man's carbon dioxide emissions are driving climate change. And if you want any proof of that, you go, well, you've had some recent hot years, yes, but the temperature in this globe has been much, much hotter in decades, millennia past. Uh, man's carbon dioxide wasn't driving that. Um, and so this is a question of cause. And if you say the cause is not valid, well, reducing our quality of life and our standard of living is um, uh, in, to, to slay some imaginary dragon it's, is not going to make any difference to climate change. So that's the position I come at. If you want to talk about renewable energy, I'm all for renewable energy but I don't think the taxpayer should have to subsidise it. If it stacks up, do it yourself. I mean, I've got solar panels on my house because it makes economic sense, but it makes economic sense because the government subsidised them. Um, and uh, I, I see, and I come from a state where we had a five-day blackout because of renewable energy capacity, and uh, that's creeping all across the country. It's, that's silly policy as far as I'm concerned. So my second part of that question, basically, so what would it take... Would it take a government agency to fill you full of facts and say, the facts say that your opinion is actually a little bit off where it should be? Would you 
readjust your view on, well, on something like that if it came to that? The appeal to authority like a government agency um, doesn't do it for me, I've got to tell you. Uh, the, the assessment of, of people who have no vested interest to drive, I absolutely res- respect. But who are they? Well, you know, you can go through a whole range of people, um, but basically if you, you follow the money, you'll get the results that you want. And that happens in all forms of, uh, of scientific endeavour. Uh, it happens in consulting. It happens in government. Um, they give grants to people who echo the, the prevailing view. And globally, you will find that, um, that governments give money to climate change, uh, scientists who will reinforce that view and say government needs to get bigger to do something about it, and that means taxing the people more. It means there's there's vested interest against fossil fuels and so forth. Um, if anyone can demonstrate to me why man's carbon dioxide in the last 50 years has been changing the climate when the climate has been changing for tens of thousands of years, and you can go to the geological record for that. You can go back and say the Earth has had much higher levels of carbon dioxide in the past. It has been much warmer, much cooler. And I think the greatest threat we have in this country from a climate perspective or right around the world is global cooling because there's a cycle that's attached to uh, solar flares and uh, and, uh, solar activity. And I think uh, that's declining and it's going to be a greater concern in the decades to come as you call them, the noisy left or those with a left agenda will scream until they're blue in the face with a counter-argument to that. However, within that, can you, not just the topic that we've just touched on, but in general, can you share ideas with people from that side of politics? And do you? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course we do. Um, we work cooperatively in the Senate at a professional level with people from all different political persuasions. And there are times when, when we agree on it. I mean, uh, one of the rarities is that I've agreed with the Greens has been the need for a Royal Commission into the operation of the Murray-Darling Basin system because uh, I believe that there's evidence of corruption, misuse and uh, abuse of government authority. Now, I work cooperatively with them in that space, but it's not going to stop me from calling out when I think people are wrong. And once again, I come back to it, that the lived experience demonstrates that a lot of the claims that have been made by people who are alarmist or into experimental politics, as I described it, have been born wrong. They've been proved wrong. But um, that's what politics is about. It's this debate and battle of ideas, and you're not going to agree with everyone professionally or personally. And I often say that my wife and I Um, we disagree on a whole range of things and that makes life interesting. It doesn't mean you can't get along. When you say born wrong, do you mean like feet first instead of head first or cesarean or... (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I couldn't help that. I can't can't even remember how I was born. (laughs) What is born wrong? (laughs) Well, no, when I said born, it means it's it's been in in the essence of uh, they've... It's played out in the longer term. Born with B-O-R-N, an E. B-O-R-N-E, yeah. Born with an E. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned there about having to coexist with the, the, the Greens Party. Is that a little bit like having a neighbour that you really can't stand but you have to fix a fence? It's just like that and uh, they feel just as uncomfortable as I do. Um, every time they agree with me, they have to question uh, their own conscience and when I agree with them, I find myself in the same. But look, this is the thing about modern politics is actually you have to work with others on committees and a whole range of things. And sometimes uh, the strangest of bedfellows can become uh, quite good friends. And I'm happy to say that some of my closest friends reside on the other side of politics. I get along very well with people because I, because I accept they're entitled to have different views. Where I find is that 
Many on the left side of politics are very intolerant of anyone else having a different view. You wore a hat once, make Australia great again. Yeah. Why did you need the word again? Uh, because Australia is great, isn't it? As far as yeah. I can tell, it's pretty great. Yeah, it is great. But um, you've got to put this into perspective. I know it drove people into a frenzy and a froth, but I was actually in America during the Trump campaign and his slogan was, make America great again. And um, one of my team came to me, it was my birthday, and they had that hat printed and gave it to me. I took a photo, put it on Twitter, and that sent you know the likes of Penny Wong and a bunch of others into a bit of a lather. So it was a gift. I think I retweeted that and I said exactly what I said for that question. It, isn't it already great? I find yeah, it great it, already. Yeah, it is, it is great. But, you know, um, it was a play on words from the Trump campaign. I don't know why people get all incensed about it. It seems a bit odd. Are you going to walk around with it in the next election? No, mate. That's, uh, that's been done in, uh, in 2016. Um, we're moving on to the next phase of things. You know, I just say we need to bring back common sense, so I'll get a hat printed with that. In politics, things change and, and views change. You can get information when you're sitting in the Senate and you get a bill in front of you and then you study it and then you come back and you think, oh, yeah, I might change my ways here, have an open mind to things. Does your form of politics preclude you from that or do you indeed study things set your principles, if you like, with conservative politics aside and look at it with a really open mind? Well, we assess every bill uh, on its merits, but there is a, a framework upon which we are making decisions, whether this is good or bad for the country. And it comes back to those key tenets before that, you know, is this good for free enterprise? Is it going to make stronger families? Is it going to foster personal responsibility? Is it going to limit the size and scope of government? And is it going to strengthen civil society? They're the, the five tenets, if I can say, upon which my decision-making is based. I compromise uh, far less now because I'm free of the party dictates. Uh, when I was in the Liberal Party, there are a number of things which I voted for that went completely contrary to what I thought should happen. Like what? And you do, well, I mean, tax rises, for mm. example. Um, you can talk about that, uh, lifting the government uh, debt ceiling so that, you know, the government can now rack up and uh, as much debt as they like without returning to the parliament. Uh, and you could go on, there's a whole range of little things, but you can't fight every battle. Now, as a, a, an independent senator or an Australian conservative senator, I have to be across every piece of legislation as much as I can. You can't fix every ill. You've got to make decisions and determinations about whether the greater good is going to be served by this because nothing is absolutely perfect. It's frustrating, it's imperfect, but that's uh, human nature and it's politics in its current form. Australia is a multicultural society, as we very much know. You know it as well. Your father was an, uh, an Italian immigrant and where we get our immigration from has changed from decade to decade, of course, and, and of late it's very different to what it was 20 years ago. How do you see that playing out in years to come with conservative politics in mind? Is it going to be harder to hold on to values that you hold true with conservative politics as the face of Australia naturally changes over time? Um, I don't think it's about the face of Australia. I think it's about the 
prevailing worldview, if I can put it like that, that that there seems to be a move towards um, a much more progressive agenda or, or left agenda. Uh, that's a natural cycle. Eventually, that will fail and there will be a pushback against the other side. But people come to Australia, you have to remember this, people come to Australia because it is such a wonderful place. Uh, they like the values that we have here. That's why people want to come. They like the opportunity. They like the clean environment. They like the space. They like our way of life and our quality of life. And that's what I want to protect and preserve. Now, it doesn't matter the color of someone's skin. Uh, It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what their religion is. What matters is their behavior. And I'm absolutely rejecting anyone that wants to come to Australia and run parallel legal systems or, or think that, you know, the law shouldn't apply to them. I'm not into people who want to abuse our welfare system, as some do. And I think we're doing a disservice to our country with the level of immigration we have right now, because... As I said, individuals' incomes, per capita incomes, are going backwards uh, because uh, immigration is too high and their quality of life is going backwards because governments can't keep up with service demand, welfare demand, infrastructure demand and housing demand. And all of these things come into play. And uh, it's about looking after Australia's national interests rather than caving into, you know, this incessant globalism that says you've just got to allow anyone in who wants to come here. So is it looking back to look forward? Well, it's about being prudent. Um, You know, it's it's interesting now. There's about 200,000 or so permanent migrants that come to Australia. I think, you know, it should be about 100,000, right, at this point in time, and that would be better. But we've got a whole range of people that that are gaming the system and ripping it off. We know that people come here to study at our universities. It's a big industry, but many of them do it because it's a shortcut route to permanent residency, and then they use the family reunion scheme to bring family and friends out. Some of them stay on welfare for a very, very long time. We've just got to be mindful of all of these circumstances. And I've got a comprehensive plan. I can take you through uh, exactly how we would reform it to make sure that immigration is acting in our social, our cultural and our economic interest. Don't fifth generation Australians ask for welfare as well? Yeah, of course they do. And, you know, that's, that's a, a responsibility of a, of a prudent government to provide for those who, who can't. But you can't sustain the current level of, uh, of welfare, for example, because about 50%, I'll stand correctly, it could be 49 or 51, but about 50% of people in this country receive more in government benefits that, or assistance than they actually contribute through the tax system. Now, that means that you're on a recipe to ruin when half the population is propping up the other half. And every time government meddles in this space, it creates a bigger mess. They try and ease the cost of living for families by giving them handouts, and that just increases reliance on government and uh, generally the services that they require for that assistance for, the prices go up. Now, I believe government would be much better served by saying, well, let's make the taxation burden for families and individuals much, much lower and allow them to be responsible and make choices for themselves and where the consequences of those choices. Within conservative politics, there's obviously various faces and a few of them get a few headlines. How do you get on with those people? Bob Catter, <laughs> Pauline Hanson. Look, I've had not much to do with Bob Catter, to be frank. Um, I find it very difficult to have a conversation with him on those occasions when I have um, because it's, it's like a, a, a train 
going along six different tracks at once, and I, I find it very difficult to keep track of that. Pauline Hanson is my neighbour in the Senate. Uh, our offices are next to each other. I found her to be perfectly courteous, a very nice person, um, always happy with a smile and a, and a good morning, and um, I've worked pretty well with her on, on a number of occasions. Why is it, though, that you guys... And I say you guys. The, the, You're allowed the, to say that, despite what the army says. You're not allowed to use the term guys. <laughs> With um, yourself and Pauline Hanson and Bob Catter, you, you get so much airtime. So oh, much. I don't, oh, I don't get a patch on what those other two get. Um, uh, well, I don't know. I suppose we've all got something to say. But um, I like to think that what I say is uh, logical, it's rational, it's considered and it's consistent with the philosophical approach that I've, uh, I've taken into politics throughout my entire career. How many times do people come up to you in the street and get angry with you or send you various correspondence with stern disagreement about <laughs> what, uh, what your views are? A stern disagreement. Look, I get lots of correspondence, mostly emails, because there's all these keyboard warriors who are, you know, kind of rather pathetic, to be honest. Um, uh, sometimes they leave messages on my uh, answering machine, in the office, generally they're late at night, so I'm presuming there's a, a couple of bottles under the belt by then. Um, in the street, it's a different thing. People often come up and ask if I'm Corey Bernardi, and to which I'm always a bit cagey because I'm not sure what response I'm going to get. But uh, most people are courteous. There was one guy who stopped me on a plane once. He was walking past and he said, are you Corey Bernardi? I said, yeah. And he said, oh, I think you're a blank. And um, that's a very rare occasion. Very rare. You know, some people just don't have much courtesy about them. A respectful disagreement, I think, is, is part of public life. But there's lots of people also that come up and, you know, say, congratulations, thank you, you're a voice for me and, and I support what you're doing. So, you know, this, it's mixed. I think those ones that really want to give a piece of their mind with a differing view probably get up to you and go... Oh, goodness, he's nearly two metres tall. I'll leave it for today. I'll send him an email instead. <laughs> you know, I reckon there's an element of that too. And I've been confronted and I think people have had a second thought about uh, what they were planning to do. Um, but, you know, I'm always up for a conversation, but it's just you want to have intelligent conversations. You don't want to have just people yelling abuse. You want to be able to have the to and fro's of what is courteous discourse. On your new party that's going to the federal election for the first time, the Australian Conservatives, with that you've got people running for Senate seats and uh, in the House all around Australia. How do you control the new herd? And when I say control the new herd, you might have someone running who might say something out of line with what your values are and you've got a controversy there. Conversely, people are going to come after people in your party. You, you do realise that given the noise around conservative politics today, how do you control that and ensure you stay on a straight path? Yeah, there are a couple of points here. We're focusing on the Senate. So we've got candidates running in the Senate. Uh, we're open to the opportunity potentially in a couple of lower house seats, but our focus is not to compete with the major parties uh, to form government or to, you know, um, shape government. We want to actually shape the decisions that whomever forms government is going to make. And so we've got a smaller team uh, around the country, but they're united by the values and principles. Now, that doesn't mean we are all going to agree on everything all the time and we're absolutely open to it, but we're committed to those principles that we look at a position or a, an idea and say, is this going to be good for families? Is it going to be shrink the size of government? You know, they're the, the, the filters that we run through. And uh, then we'll have a discussion about it. If we're, if we're fortunate enough to be elected and have others elected at the um, election and have the balance of power in the Senate, uh, I can guarantee it will be a united and cohesive force. 
Who's paying for all of this? Because it can't be cheap. No, it's not cheap at all. But once again, we took a a different path. Uh, We eschewed the big funding model and uh, we've pursued what I call low donor fundraising. And so in our first, I can only tell you last year, actually, in the last 12 months, we've put our financial return in already. We had something like 30,000 individual donations. Uh, They ranged in size. I think the largest one we had was two $50,000 donations from an individual, um, but that's an aberration. Uh, mostly, we were all under the disclosure threshold and um, most of them were in the region of uh, $30 or thereabouts. So, we are truly a grassroots-powered uh, party. Um, we're always looking for money because it, it is not cheap and uh, getting media exposure is potentially one of the most expensive and challenging things for, for any startup. Senator Corey Bernardi, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for the discussion about conservative politics and wish you well in the upcoming election. Thanks so much. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.